Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness and your love to us. Oh God, we thank you for who you are, high and lifted up, seated upon your throne. Oh Lord, in sovereign control of your creation, which you have made with your own hands. Lord, which belongs to you, for we are the work of your hands. And God, we thank you for the privilege that we have to come before you through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and through his sacrifice for us. That, Lord, that he has completely satisfied your wrath and reconciled us unto you and even granted to us his perfect righteous life. Lord, he has been our substitute both in his death and in his life. And we thank you for this high and holy truth that, Lord, now in him we stand complete in him. That, Father, we have a perfect relationship restored with you. And though even though we live in this body of sin, O oh God, in standing before you, we are holy and blameless in Christ. And we thank you for the privilege of your blessed Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts, who is conforming us into the image of Christ and changing us and transforming us into his likeness. And, Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to grow in the faith and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, we ask that you'd strengthen us in our faith and help us to be more like him. Oh, Lord, we want to glorify you and honor you with our life. We want people to see our life and glorify you, God. Moreover, oh, Lord, you have commanded us to enjoy you, to rejoice in all that you are and to rest in your promises and to Press on in our faith, Lord, looking to you for strength. We thank you for all that you are to us and all that you're doing in us. We ask this morning as we look into your word that you'll give us clear insight and understanding as to the things that you have said to us here in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would uh, uh, just continue to help us grow and understand. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so with that, we are uh, back in our study of 2 Thessalonians, and we're in chapter 3. On the notes, we're on page 107. And uh, if you will, just by uh, way of review, there's a section of text in 2 Thessalonians starting in chapter 2, which really begins all the way back in chapter 2, verse 1, but the section that we're kind of coming to a close starts in chapter 2, verse 13, and it goes through chapter 3, verse 5. And in that section of text, Paul is trying to reassure the Thessalonians by way of contrast, you'll recall, that they are not like those who formerly, back in the text of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, they're not like those who perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They're not like those who took pleasure in wickedness and because of that come under the deception of the Antichrist and perish with all those in the world. Instead, they've been chosen by God from the beginning for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And he's drawing this contrast that they have been set apart by God for God's purposes, and God is seeing to it that they are going to be saved. Well, this whole section from 2 Thessalonians 2.13 through chapter 3, verse 5, is Paul reassuring them that. And, and in that whole section there, he is in many various and sundry ways emphasizing the sovereignty of God in all of salvation. He's not just talking about the fact that they've been chosen from the beginning for salvation by God, but that God is currently and presently uh, working in them to cause them to persevere and to uh, produce fruit in the Christian life for his own glory and for his own purpose, and that he's ultimately going to bring them into the state of glorification, that they might, in verse 14, gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of these things, Paul keeps talking about the fact that they're God's work, that God is doing these things. And nevertheless, in the same words, he is using that encouraging truth to spur them on to their own response and their own steadfastness and their own uh, uh, working 
uh, for the Lord and uh, walking according to him. And if you will, as we uh, were talking about last week, there is this paradoxical idea that there is both sovereign prerogative and human responsibility that's going on in the process of salvation. And so even though God is at work wholly in every part of salvation to, because it's his purpose to save us, he is also exhorting and encouraging us to respond with our whole heart and with our will. Amen? And so these two truths are in many places in Scripture seen hand in hand. That is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Well, that can be very clearly seen in this section of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, through 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. It is at this point in the text, verse 5, that Paul makes a transition and begins to address some practical matters in the life of the church. Namely, he's going to deal with some people who he's already tried to deal with when he was there, and then also in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, who are continuing to be stubbornly obstinate and not responding to Paul's correction. And so, if you will, he's going to outline uh, some of the process of church discipline for us in the section of chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 3, <laughs> verse 12. And so... Um, uh, with that, we're going to uh, just briefly look at uh, verse 5, which is kind of where we left off last week, where Paul says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. See here yet another benediction from Paul, seeking to encourage them again, that having their hearts directed into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ is a work that God works in them. For it is the Lord who directs our hearts into these things. And again, you can see how Paul, in yet encouraging them, is talking about how God is doing his sovereign work. Even Christian obedience is ascribed to God, for he alone is to receive the glory for the work of salvation he has wrought in our hearts because of his love for him, which he has placed there, and it is obedience and steadfastness which is the proof and fruit of our love to him, which he has placed in our hearts by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul can elsewhere tell us to work out our own salvation and yet describe that as being the very work of God within us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we're all familiar with that passage in Philippians 2, where Paul says in verse 12 and 13, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." And there again, you see these truths side by side in the same verse of Scripture where Paul is saying, you're to work out your salvation. Why? Because God is working in you both to will and to work. Isn't that interesting? How Paul says that God is at work in you both to will and to work. As if your very will were not your own but it were yet motivated by the, by the inward working power of the Holy Spirit, right? But of course, we know our will is our own, amen? <laughs> and yet God is working in, in us, His will, and He's motivating our will by this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, by this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, amen? Which happens because we've been regenerated by Him. Because God is working in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See here in these verses, chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 5, that a strong emphasis is placed on many aspects of God's work in salvation. Not only has he chosen us from the beginning, but he is working sanctification by the Spirit in us through the gift of faith in the truth. He also called us by his gospel so that we could ultimately gain the glory of Christ in glorification. He further comforts and strengthens us in such a way that it produces every good work and word with his good hope by grace. 
Because he is faithful to strengthen and protect us from the evil one, we will continue to do what he commands as he directs our hearts into his love and steadfastness. These expressions of God's sovereign work, not only in the election to salvation, his past work, but also in the many and varied aspects of sanctification, his present work, and also in our final glorification, all because of his sovereign love and grace, should cause us to clearly see what the Bible means by the expression that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his to give. And when he gives it, guess what? We get it. Not only do we get it, okay, but God is sovereign to see that it is fulfilled and that we ultimately gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That even our final perseverance is in the hands of God. And all the while, he commands us to be holy even as he is holy. He commands us to be a witness for him. He commands us with many high and holy commandments that are to be fulfilled by us. Amen? It is all his work from first to last, and he is to get the glory for it from us who are the objects of his grace for every aspect of it. It is of these glorious things that we will sing forever and ever in the presence of the Lamb and to his Father and the Father's glory, world without end. May our lives reflect a constant gratitude for his amazing love to us according to his eternal purpose in Christ. Amen? So, can you kind of get a view of that section of text from chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 5, and see how Paul has emphasized there God's sovereign work and salvation, and yet at the same time has called us to be responsible believers in pressing on in our heavenward calling? Can you see that? Can I get a witness? Okie dokie. All right. Well, then that brings us to the section of text starting in chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul kind of shifts gears here, and he's going to bring some concluding remarks and deal with an issue that is in the church. He says in verse 6 through 9, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. And so here Paul makes a very interesting statement. And um, if you've been in the American evangelical church long, this might be a rather startling statement. In fact, you may not have ever even heard it before. But this is what he says. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Well, tell us how you really feel, Paul. <laughs> That's a pretty nice suggestion you made there. You with me? What do you think is the emphasis on Paul's com- uh, uh, words when he says, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do I have your attention? Exactly. <laughs> this is an imperative, and it's not only an imperative, but it is an imperative by which he charges us with the formal name of Jesus. You understand the name? We've talked about this many times in the past, but the name The Lord Jesus Christ is three separate names that all speak about Jesus. And each one of those pieces of his name emphasizes a different aspect or, if you will, a different perspective on who he is. And when Paul uses them together, he means to say something very formally and and very much in an all-encompassing way about who the person of Christ is. When he says, 
the Lord Jesus Christ altogether. Because sometimes Paul will just say the Lord Jesus. And sometimes Paul will just say the Lord. And sometimes Paul will just say Jesus. And sometimes Paul will just say Christ. But when he says Lord Jesus Christ, okay, he means it. He means for you to stop and pay attention that this is something that he is addressing in this very formal way. Well, not only that, but here he says, we command you. This isn't a nice suggestion for how to get along and play church. You understand what Paul's saying? This isn't some optional thing for you. Um, What Paul is saying is, we are commanding you. He says... We command you. We, who's we? Somebody tell me, who's we? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We apostles command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? This is an imperative. Paul here now issues a stern command when he says, now we command you. But this command is softened by the word brethren. So if you will, he's not like uh, some kind of drill sergeant busting you over the top of the head with a Bible, right? Instead, he's like a brother who is looking us right in the eye and saying to us in a very solemn and imperative way. Are you with me? Now, we command you, brethren. But the authority that Paul issues this command is not some man or even his own apostolic authority, but rather in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, a frequent saying of Paul. This, is, this of course, makes this an emphatic imperative that is to be taken note of and swiftly and consistently obeyed. What is the command? It is that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Now think about how long you've been in the church. Has anybody ever commanded you such a thing? I get a few few, uh, uh, noggins going, yeah. But it's only a few. Isn't it interesting how we seem to dismiss the unpopular things in Scripture? And now they seem to be strangely not even among us. Yeah? Well, it wasn't the case with Paul, and it wasn't the case with the Thessalonians. This is what he said, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. The idea of keep away is to shun. Paul is telling the Thessalonians here to shun some of the Thessalonians. When he says brother, he's, he's not talking about Christian brother. He's talking about their... No, sir. He's talking about Christian brothers. Right. He's talking about Christian brother right there. You got it. Here's what he's saying to the Thessalonians. You Thessalonians, shun your Christian brothers. That's what he's saying. So, so now he's really got our attention, doesn't he? <laughs> So we better, we better grasp what Paul is saying because that brings to pass some very important circumstances in our midst, doesn't it? Okay, so, um, and he's going to go on to say, he's going to go on to explain this, uh, Harold, in later verses, all the way back in, in, in uh, verse uh, uh, 14 and 15, he's going to address that, that issue of brother. But... Uh, <clears throat> let's see, okay, the idea of keep away is to shun to keep aloof from or to ostracize. This process is the third step of corrective discipline as outlined by our Lord in Matthew 18 and is meant to turn the person to repentance so that they can be lovingly restored to Christ and the church. And I'll remind you of that section of text in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, which we're going to talk about some more in in, uh, uh, coming verses. But he says here, Jesus If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. So the, there, there are steps here that the Lord has outlined for dealing with a sinning brother, okay? And uh, if you will, 
Uh, you see Jesus' words in verse 15, if your brother sins, okay? Of course, he doesn't mean blood brother. He means what? Christian brother, right? A, a, a professing believer in the faith. Notice that Paul calls this person a brother, and he is to be admonished by this behavior in a spirit of corrective, loving discipline. This is because his behavior is that of an unruly life and is certainly not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Paul had always taught that the church Paul had always taught the church that Christians ought to work with their own hands, 1 Thessalonians 4:11, in order not to be a burden to on others, but to meet their own needs by steady hard work and also then to meet the needs of others who had legitimate and genuine needs because of an inability to work or some other employment-hindering circumstance. Paul also points to this as a witness to outsiders of the attractive nature of the Christian work ethic and example of loving sacrifice for others. So, you know, Paul's instruction was always for the Christians that they're to work hard, that they're to to be uh, uh, quiet, hard-working people, that they're to live an orderly life, and that they are to not only work so that they can provide for their own needs, but that they can also provide for the needs of others who are less fortunate or who are in situations that hinder them from being able to work or situations that keep them from being able to have bread themselves. Okay? For example, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, he says, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. You know that phrase we use, mind your own business? That comes from the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) To lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Why does he want them to work with their own hands? So that they won't be in any need. And so that their life will be an example of what? Of the way Christians live. How do they live? Quiet, peaceable, hardworking lives. Understand? Not only that, but in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, just as we commanded you. Now, when did Paul command the Thessalonians, when he writes of that in 1 Thessalonians, when he was there for three weeks discipling them. So in that short period of time, he had given them a Christian lifestyle. He had given them a Christian work ethic. He had given them an understanding of how they were supposed to live, right? Of course, that was an important part of his teaching. Or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, he says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. And so there Paul gives a contrast to this quiet, hardworking Christian life. And he says that some people live in an undisciplined way. This is a negative criticism by Paul. They live in an undisciplined way, doing what? No work at all. Okay, listen, Christians are not supposed to be people who do no work at all. Amen? Christians are supposed to be quiet, hardworking people who mind their own business. Amen? Amen. Ephesians 4.28, he writes, Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. You see that? Christians are to work in such a way that it provides an abundance for them. And so that out of the overflow of that abundance, they can share, that they can be giving people because we serve a giving God. Amen? Not only do we serve a giving God, listen, we serve a working God. Did you know that? God is always at work, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So then, therefore, when a Christian refuses to work or is too lazy to work, he is to be taken note of as one who is unruly, meaning that he is disorderly and disobedient to Christ. Paul had obviously dealt with these unruly persons in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, and even at the time he commanded the church to admonish them. 
uh, back in chapter uh, 5, verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. And so Paul had told them, when they get out of line, you admonish them. That's what we do in the church. We admonish and teach every man in order to what? Present him perfect in Christ. Amen? We admonish him with all wisdom. We, we admonish them according to something. According to what? To God's wisdom in the Bible. Amen? His self-revelation to us. These instructions should highlight for us the weight and importance that God puts on the Christian work ethic and cause us to see that Christ expects us to be fruitful laborers who work hard to meet their own needs and also the needs of others. You understand what we're saying here? By the nature of this language that Paul is saying concerning this issue about working or not working, we are to understand that this is something that God places a high importance upon. The way that we live our life and the lifestyle that we live, specifically that we're quiet and hardworking and minding our own business, these kinds of ideas when it comes to our lifestyle are to be the thing that marks a Christian, and God is very concerned about it. He's so concerned about it that if people get out of line and don't live according to these traditions and instructions, that the church is to discipline them. You understand? This isn't an optional thing. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an eye-opener. Amen? Acts 20, verse 30 and following... 30, uh, 20, verse 34 and following. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, Paul was an example of a hard worker. Paul was an example of working hard so that he wouldn't be a burden on others. This matter is so important that believers living in this unruly manner are to be disciplined to the point of being ostracized. Okay? Not only does Paul say that they ought to be shunned, but he, he points out that this is the, the discipline that you uh, supply to somebody who's in this situation, okay? He doesn't say, uh, he doesn't bring this to the point that they are to be treated like an unbeliever. He's dealing with this in a very specific way, as we're going to see all the way down through verse 15. But uh, pay attention exactly what he says about how this is supposed to take place. Painful though it may be that these Christians are to be ostracized, this is what love demands. And I want you to think about something. Discipline is something that we do in our homes, right? And in the church, which is something that is motivated by what? Love. By love. Why? Be, you know, discipline is a very unpleasant thing. Just ask my kids. It never was pleasant in my house. I promise. Here, I got one right here. Yeah. She promises too. Okay? Discipline is not a pleasant thing. And you're telling me that when we implement discipline, it's a loving thing? You better believe it. What does that say to us about the nature of love? Well, it means we love your eternal soul more than we do your earthly comfort. Amen? Something to think about. You know, a lot of people think the process of church discipline is something that's very unloving. In fact, people will leave the church because they don't like uh, a church that disciplines. Okay? It's a controversial issue, believe it or not. With all these words right here in Scripture, <laughs> it's a controversial issue. Yes, sir? On the other hand, if discipline is not uh, issues, people will leave because Right, right. Well, of course, we recognize, I recognize. Let me just, let me just bring it home here. Although I can speak for my other fellow pastor elders. 
We recognize that the process of church discipline is a characteristic that must mark a healthy church. If you're in a church that doesn't discipline sinning believers, you're in a church that ultimately is not preaching the gospel. Why? Because the gospel demands our repentance. And if we go preaching demands of repentance to a people whom we are unwilling to hold them accountable in love, then where is the weight in the glory of our profession? Are you with me? And so, uh, you know, we, a lot of times we say things with our lips, but we're not willing to carry them out with our hands. Okay, not so in the church. Not so in the church. And so these are things to consider. Let's continue working our way through this text. Verse 7, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have a right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Paul had obviously taught this to them as he reminds them saying, for you yourselves know. You remember that's a frequent saying of Paul in Thessalonians. He keeps saying this over and over and over again in the first letter and in the second letter. You yourselves know. He keeps telling them that. Why? Because he had told them all these things when he was there, when he was discipling them. He had gone over all these things with them. You yourselves know, right? As he frequently does, he points to his own behavior as a model for them, saying how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. The idea of living in an undisciplined manner is in contrast to leading... I'm sorry. The idea of living in a disciplined manner is in contrast to leading an unruly life, which is not according to the tradition that we gave you. You see, Paul considers living a disciplined life, working hard, and living in a quiet manner and minding your own business. And, and that, if you will, that work is something that we do as a matter of discipline. We're disciplined to work. Why? Because work is toil. Right? I mean, people don't normally want to work. Right? I mean, I know a lot of us love our work. And, and that's a good thing. Praise God if you love your work. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, not everybody loves their work. work. Work is toil. It's not easy. It's toilsome. It's burdensome. Right? And, um, and so, if you will, um, the fact that we have to continue in work is something that requires self-discipline. Amen? And so, you know, this is what Paul says. He uses these words, undisciplined, right, or unruly. And he says that this is not according to the tradition we gave you. You see, he keeps using this word tradition. It, it simply means the teachings that we gave you in the church, the instructions that we gave you either when by way of discipleship or by way of letter, okay? And so uh, he clearly points to the fact that they worked for their own sustenance, saying, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day. The idea of eating one's own bread is a Hebraism, meaning more than just food, but also life sustenance of all kinds. This is something that the Hebrews would talk about when they talked about eating your own bread. You know, it's, it carries the same idea as my dad used to say, pulling your own weight, Right? The idea was that, you know, you, you supplied enough in the family for your own room and board kind of idea. This is a Hebraism, okay? Eating one's own bread, and that's what it means. Pulling your own weight. Working for your own food and, and, and uh, shelter, okay? And any other life sustenance that, that you may need. The importance of working for one's own bread is a biblical commandment so that we don't burden others with our needs. You see, that's what Paul says. So we did this so as not to be a burden on any one of you, right? Or in 1 Thessalonians where he was saying, he said that you would work so, uh, so that you would not be in any need, right? 
So then, but rather we are to work hard to have an abundance to meet the genuine needs of others who have much less. This Paul makes clear, saying, so that we would not be a burden to any of you, hoping that they would see his example and follow suit, noting, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. The apostles were obviously preaching and working simultaneously. Now think about this. Here comes these apostles, and they come into the city of Thessalonica, and they're preaching when they have opportunity, and then when they're not preaching, they're working. And Paul says, we did this so we wouldn't be a burden on any one of you, and we wanted you to see an example of our lifestyle, that we were disciplined men who worked hard. The apostles were obviously preaching and working simultaneously, as he states, with labor and hardship. We kept working night and day. See here that Paul had every right to eat the bread of those within the church when he says, not because we do not have a right to this. Jesus and the apostles consistently taught that Christian pastors are surely worthy of their life sustenance and material goods from those to whom they minister, as they are servants of those to whom they minister for their spiritual and eternal benefit especially those who worked hard at preaching and teaching. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying both Jesus and the apostles said that the Christian pastor, and in this case, Paul was acting as as a pastor, uh, evangelist and pastor teacher, right? Um, Are worthy of their life sustenance from preaching the gospel. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 9 and following, Do not acquire gold or silver or copy for your money belts or a bag for your journey. This is when he's sending out the disciples, right? Or even two tunics or sandals or a staff. Why? For the worker is worthy of his support. Here's what Jesus is saying to those those apostles. When you go out to preach the gospel, you're worthy of your support. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 11 and following. If we sowed spiritual things in you... Is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. You see that? Or he writes again in Galatians 6, 6, speaking of the similar thing. He says there, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. And of course, the idea there is of sustenance. Or in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 and following, he says there, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. You get the point? This is clearly taught by Jesus and the apostles. And that's why Paul says that it's not because we didn't have a right to this, right? But we wanted to be an example to you. Listen, if your pastor spends his earthly labor and his days and his time, a mere 40 or 50 years, serving the interests of his people, which benefits them throughout eternity, should they not uphold and undergird him in this short life? Answer? Yes. Yes, and amen, they should. Indeed, they should. And they, and they should do it in a manner worthy of the kingdom of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we do not want to be held in contempt by him on the great day for the way we treated his ministers here and now. Amen? amen. Yes, ma'am, what were you going to say? My understanding is that we do not support all of our pastors here mm-hmm. for financial reasons. So then we're in violation of God's commandment here. No, ma'am. Oh. No, ma'am. Did, well, (laughs) did Paul not here, by his own will, Uh forfeit any support he may have received from the church? Answer? Yes. Yes, he did. (laughs) What did we see in that example? We We see in that example by Paul 
that he can willingly forfeit that support. And he, he therefore relieves the church of any responsibility. You understand? Yes. It's not that the church was unwilling to support him. Right. It's just that Paul said, hey, I want to be an example in this way to you, so this is what I'm going to do. Such was his practice in all the Gentile world. Right? But not always. Paul didn't always uh, defer that support. There were many times when Paul used that support. It's in the scripture in various places. I can't tell you where right now. It's not on the top of my head. But uh, uh, in this case, with these Thessalonians, when he was there, he deferred their support. So you can defer as being a good example to the brethren. Uh When in need, you need to be humble enough to accept the need as Paul did. Sure. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. But even that would be demanded by wisdom, not by scripture. Right. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. Are there any other questions there? Okay. All right. Uh, <clears throat> point made, though. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Now what's he talking about? When was he with them? When he originally discipled them, when he evangelized them, and when they became a church. Amen? He says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. This is what Paul was telling the Thessalonians when he was there for three short weeks. You don't work, you don't eat. The fact that Paul also taught this principle to them verbally, and not just in his letter, is clearly seen by the statement, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. And notice how Paul said it was an order. It was a command. It was an imperative. He was always serious about this. That is what a command, that, that is, was a command and not just a suggestion, is clear by the words, give you this order. Paul's teaching in the church was authoritative and was to be fully obeyed. Christians will do well to obey their leaders with proper respect and ready obedience when it is very clear that they are being taught accurately and with a hearty example of the Christian faith. For it is not men that we serve, but rather the Lord Jesus Christ. Why should you obey your church leaders? Because it's not men who we're serving. It's Christ. That is, of course, if what they are giving you is the commands of Christ. Are you with me? And not only that, but it's not empty words, but it's words that have a manifest evidence of its power by the way that they live. Amen? Boy, man, that stuff really makes a room quiet. (laughs) Paul reminds them that he used to give them this imperative. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. And the fact that he had dealt with this problem both by word of mouth and also by letter magnifies the nature of this problem in the Thessalonian church. They were among them, obviously, there were among them, obviously, some who were busybodies and lived in an undisciplined manner. We should take note at this point that it is those who are not willing to work who are in view here and not those who are unable to work. You understand? He's talking about those who are unwilling to work. A hearty distinction is to be made by those who are not willing and not able. Moreover, in our day and in our culture, there is much work that can be performed even by those with some physical disability. And if ready employment can be found, even for those with some limitations, it should be. We have an entitlement problem in America, which is created by the abuse of the welfare system, by the abuse of the welfare system, and by many lazy people in our culture who are not willing to work. 
and use even the slightest excuses and disabilities to have their needs met by those who work hard. That's a problem. But this is not to be the case for the Christian. You understand? There's a distinction between America and being a Christian. And we like to say we're a Christian nation, right? Really, the term Christian nation is, is, an, is an oxymoron. You can't, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Why? Because nations can't be saved. Individuals can be saved. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be saved. Why? How? Through personal repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Now, it is entirely possible to have a populace of people made up mostly of Christians. And, and one might use that terminology to describe that body of people. Amen? Of course, one would question how many Christians are really left in America. Right? But the point of the matter is, is that... <clears throat> We do have an entitlement problem in our culture, okay, in the American culture. And we have to be careful that that cultural problem doesn't affect the church. You understand? Which it surely has. And this is a problem been throughout church history, right? Is that the culture has a heavy effect on the church. And it's important for us in the church to understand the, the ailments of our culture so that we don't take on that likeness, right? And that we make war with that and become like Christ instead. Amen? Are you with me? Are you with me? Yes. Okay, then. Yes, T. Can you give a practical example of how this should be executed? Um, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Is this something that individual believers are supposed to go to another brother and say, and, you know, exert this kind of, this on them, or is this something that the well, obvi- elders are supposed well, to Well, obviously, in, in this culture and in this time and in this Thessalonian issue, okay, their situation was far different than what we're experiencing here in modern America, okay? And, and not only that, but in most cultures of the world, right, getting one's daily bread is not so easy as a thing as walking over to the refrigerator and pulling out whatever it is that you want to eat. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Right? We, of course, we have the exception in Western civilization of, of having our basic human needs amply met. Well, that's not the case um, in, in many places and in large parts of the world. Right? So getting one's daily bread in the Christian church also becomes a matter of Christians meeting one another's needs. Okay? Which obviously was somehow related to this case with the Thessalonians. Okay? Not only that, but you have the whole thing of these early Christians used to meet together for love feast. They would frequently eat together, and this was a part of the way that they, you know. So, um, but but nevertheless, the the fact of the fact of the matter remains. Remember that eating one's own bread is not just a reference to them getting food, okay? But it's a reference to their 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 sustenance in life, okay? And here's what Paul's saying: Don't let these busybodies, right? leech off of you what doesn't belong to them if they're unwilling to work, okay? And, and so obviously the way that we're going to implement that has a lot to do with the culture that we live in and the, the, the ability, if you will, to implement that kind of discipline on that kind of issue. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Did I make it clear or can I further clarify? Further um, clarify. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, here, here's the deal. If people, if, if, let's just say that we have somebody in the church who keeps coming to the church and asking for benevolence because they can't feed their family. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we know that that is an able-bodied man who can go out and find ready, gainful employment. Okay. Here, here's how this works. Guess what? If you don't work, you don't eat. Don't come here asking for benevolence to feed your family if you're an able-bodied man. Are you with me? Now, obviously, that's a broad general statement, right? It's, I mean, there are going to be cases when there are situations when people can't find work, right? And then we're going to have to rely on one another for those kinds of things. 
You understand what I'm saying? And so the way that you implement that becomes very different in a practical sense, okay, but the principle doesn't change. Is that clearer? Well, part of his question, too, was, though, does he himself do this, or does he take it to the elders, and the elders are the ones that... This is a corporate church activity, okay? But don't forget that the corporate church activity is made up of individual members. And he's going to call all the individual members to accountability for this process of church discipline here in a few minutes, and a few verses later, okay? And so uh, probably some of these questions will get addressed as we work our way through this. This goes all the way through verse uh, uh, 15, okay? So can I answer any more questions about that? Steps about unruly. I don't know what you mean. Sorry. The people that are un- brethren that are unruly. Uh huh. Wouldn't this fall under the same category? The Matthew 18 steps. Is that what you're referring to? He's unruly. He's unwilling to work, right? Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. That'd be the same case, right? No, it is the case. It's not the same case. It is the case. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. The case is men in the church who won't work. Yeah. That's what's in view in this section of text in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Yes, and that is what Paul is saying. This is an issue that is being disciplined by the church. Paul's giving instructions on how to do that. Okay? All right. Okay, where were we here? We're midway down on page 110, right? Okay, so, but this is not the case for the Christian. We have a much higher work ethic than those who are in the world. And only those with legitimate and genuine needs are to be dependent on others. Paul's command is clear. The lazy man is not to be given food, but should be allowed to have his hunger drive him to the workplace. (laughs) Paul elsewhere tells us that people who are unwilling to meet the needs of themselves and their own families are worse than unbelievers. 1 Timothy 5.8. He goes on, verse 11, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. There you go, Harold. He's talking about some specific people in the church in this issue. Okay? We we hear. Listen, Paul says, we hear this. We know this is going on. This is a real thing. This isn't just some uh hypothetical thing okay this is a real issue that paul had already dealt with when he was there and also in the letter of first thessalonians he says now such persons we command and exhort in the lord jesus christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread paul now refers to some report he heard saying for we hear that some among you this report likely came from timothy's visit to deliver First Thessalonians. But nevertheless, the issue is that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Paul again mentions that this behavior is substandard for the Christian life, saying that they are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all. See here again the weight and importance that the apostle places on Christians working hard to be fruitful and to produce rather than be lazy and do no work at all. It is imperative that Christians work hard to meet not only their own basic needs, but also to have an abundance to share in loving their neighbor. But these lazy Thessalonian brothers were not only not willing to work, but were causing problems because in their idleness were going around acting like busybodies, a reference to meddling in the affairs of others. Paul uses the term also in 1 Timothy, and it is usually associated with idle behavior coupled with a loud mouth which gossips and meddles in the affairs of others. For example, in 1 Timothy 5.13, and at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. You see, busybodies are typically related to things that are coming out of their mouth, too. Right? Not good things. 
It's a negative thing. Busybody, right? In fact, the same Greek word in Peter is translated as a troublesome meddler. Okay? Peter uses the same term, which is translated in the NASB as a troublesome meddler. The alternate in the NKJV is a busybody in other people's matters. 1 Peter 4.15, By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. Listen, if you're a Christian and you're going to suffer, don't suffer because you're a troublesome meddler in other people's affairs. You get it? That's what he's saying. Paul had dealt with the same issue and these same people earlier when he made reference to working and coupled that together with leading a quiet life and minding one's own business. There he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, and to make it your own ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Paul now reaffirms this commandment in a very direct manner and by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself saying, now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. Note the contrast in these statements between the idle and gossiping meddler or busybody and the hardworking Christian who leads a quiet life in a quiet fashion and supplies their own bread. You see the contrast? You see the contrast? He's, he's saying, don't be a lazy, good-for-nothing, idle babbler who's always uh, uh, meddling in the affairs of others. Instead, right, right? Work in a quiet fashion and mind your own business and work hard to provide for your own needs. See the contrast? You know, Paul is just constantly uses contrast by, for a way of illustration and teaching, right? Aren't you thankful for that? I am. It sure helps make it clear what he's saying. Learn then two important things in this verse 12. First, Christ commands the Christian to work hard for their own needs. And second, that Christians are not to be busybodies, that is, troublesome meddlers in the business and affairs of others. It is crystal clear in this passage that this kind of behavior is not tolerated in the Christian church and is worthy of the process of church discipline. This process is a part of every healthy church for a church which does not love its people enough to discipline and correct their misbehavior is not worthy of being called a church. Amen? Amen. I hope that's clear to you from this section of text. Are there any questions before I close today? Yeah, John. So in just looking at this this scripture here in context so in chapter 2 he talks about not quickly being shaken from your composure in regards to a spirit or a message mm-hmm. so do you think that could possibly be one of the reasons why the Thessalonians are acting like busybodies because maybe they're under the impression that the day of the Lord is upon them and that they think Jesus Christ is going to be returning so that the work well, it's important to note that this is not uh, um, a problem with the major populace of the Thessalonian church, but it is a few troublesome meddlers that obviously Paul had dealt with not only when he was there, which he refers to in verse chapter 3, verse 10, but also... Um, he had wrote to them about it in 1 Thessalonians 11, uh, 4, 11, and 12, and also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. But the point is, is that it is a select group or a select few, and not, if you will, the whole church. Whether or not their motivation was, you know, hey, 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come in 1988, <laughs> right? Which is what you're saying. Right. So, you know, Jesus' return is right around the corner, so, you know, no reason for us to work. We need to work out in the field. Yeah. Right. People come up with all kinds of excuses why not to work, don't they? Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. So whether or not that's their motivation, couldn't tell you. I think that's outside of the text. I don't see anything that implies that, but certainly could be. Certainly could be. Anybody else? Okay, let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for such clear instruction here. I pray that as we mull this over and chew on this this week, Lord, that we would consider how important it is that uh, we uh, live in obedience to the Christian faith. And God, how important it is that the church assert its authority in the life of its members, God, to, to live in a way that honors you and in a way that, that gives uh, uh, glory to your name, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls us into his own glory. I pray, God, that you would see the importance of, of our corporate church life and, and the way that we uh, uh, operate and deal with practical issues among us. I pray, Father, that you would give us great wisdom in doing these things, for the circumstances are often difficult and not always so clear. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us all, as we read these words, to fear your great name and, God, to turn away from our disobedience and to do what is right. And, Lord, may we not grow weary in doing good. Strengthen us and uphold us, Lord, until that glorious day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.